Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. In 1978, John Carpenter created a horror film that would arguably change the genre, certainly led the way in slasher films, and all on a $325,000 budget, with only 21 days to shoot and no big star names to speak of. A spray-painted Captain Kirk mask provided the faceless horror of Michael Myers, the killer who stalked teenage girls. It was a B-movie hit. What was originally named The Babysitter Murders, however, eventually took on the title Halloween and launched a multi-million dollar franchise that stretches over 40 years. The first Halloween movie plays on the horror of the ordinary, that you don't need vampires and creepy castles and ghost stories to frighten an audience that the investment in a sweet teen girl being hunted by a soulless psycho in a small Ohio town would be enough to scare the pants off viewers. Carpenter was extremely right on that front. What followed in the Halloween franchise, however, embellished not just the monstrous Michael Myers, but also that fateful night itself. Halloween. All Hallows' Eve. Samhain. The second film was released in 1981, the third in 1982, four and five were 88 and 89, respectively. The 1980s were particularly ripe for a horror storyline centered around Halloween. Celebrated by a community of neo-pagans and demonized by the new Christian rite for its pagan roots. In the U.S., this was a period of anxiety about satanic cults nerds playing Dungeons and Dragons in dank basements, and the dark stranger handing out razor-bladed candy to naive and unsuspecting trick-or-treaters. These anxieties were capitalized on by clever filmmakers, and the tone of the Halloween franchise shifted from the horror of the ordinary to the supernatural, the pagan, and even the importers of Halloween, the Irish. I'm Avril Earls. And I'm Elizabeth Garner Masaryk. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. That unmistakable, fast-paced organ music, ominous and almost comical, flickering jack-o'-lanterns, expressionist masks topped by a tuft of brownish hair, the bloody sacrifice of beautiful young people, mostly teen girls, even babies, Jamie Lee Curtis from a sweet-looking 18-year-old to a stern, alcoholic school principal and mother of the greasily sexy Josh Hartnett. Slasher films like Halloween are generally characterized by unknown figures, sometimes unmasked at the end. The murder of impure teens, those generally who sacrificed their virginity, 
um, in ever more grisly ways and only the one who saves him or herself for marriage, making it out more or less unscathed. In Halloween, Jamie Lee Curtis plays Laurie Stroud, the good babysitter who has had to slip out of the vicious grip of an escaped asylum patient, Michael Myers. She is pure. So she does live to be in the, the leading damsel in the sequel. She's aided by Myers' apparently ineffectual psychiatrist who combats Myers in five of the first six films of the Halloween franchise. The sequel, aptly named Halloween 2, however, leaned into a 1980s panic over satanic cults, poison candy, and awkward and creepy D&D teens. All rolled together, the monsters, magic, and candy corn combination in the annual celebration of Halloween conjured more fear than a psycho with a big knife. In Halloween 2, the greatest danger was not just the speechless monolith of Michael Myers. It's the festival, the holiday, the night of Halloween itself. And the second movie, the ancient Gaelic festival of Samhain, from which Halloween is more or less derived, uh, Samhain is invoked. Samhain and its pagan origins and mysterious practices seems to channel all those delightful 1980s moral and cultural panics. This is hammered home in Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which deviates entirely from the original Michael Myers plot and emphasizes instead the holiday of horror. In Halloween 2, which takes place immediately after the events of the first film, Dr. Sam Loomis, Myers' crazy psychiatrist, examines an elementary school classroom with the town sheriff. Michael Myers has evidently been to the school. There are blood stains on desks, and a kitchen knife sticks out of a child's drawing of their family. The point of it sticks in the little girl figure in the picture, and Loomis remarks that the knife is driven into the sister. Mm. On the chalkboard, scrawled in blood, is Samhain. S-A-M-H-A-I-N. Samhain... Loomis says, and he pronounces it Samhain here oh, because he? he's, he's pedestrian himself. <laughs> it means the Lord of the Dead, the end of summer, the festival of Samhain. Oh my God. <laughs> because so little is actually known about Samhain, there are a number of theories about the purpose or about its purpose and practices. So what Loomis is referring to here is Saman, the Gaelic god of the dead. There is no actual evidence to suggest that this festival was dedicated to a god. It is not even clear if there is such a god in the Celtic mythology. But that idea was proposed in the 1800s and made popular again by films like Halloween and Christian anti-Halloween protesters. When Loomis explains Samhain, he draws on superstition, rumor, and misinformation about the ancient Celtic festival. Quote, In order to appease the gods, druid priests held fire rituals. Prisoners of war, criminals, the insane animals were burned alive in baskets. <laughs> By observing the way they died, druids believed they could observe the future. You sound like the narrator from 300. <laughs> oh, good. Thanks. Yeah, the one-eyed guy. I should grow up to be that guy. There you go. Loomis finishes his pseudo-history lesson, though, by reflecting on the human element of this evil. Samhain isn't evil spirits. It isn't goblins or ghosts. It's the darkness inside ourselves. Mm. <laughs> Today, neo-pagans celebrate Samhain with a great deal of flair, uh, just kind of depending on, I don't know, what sect you belong to or whatever. Some, some people really... Uh, 
you know, do it up. They paint their bodies and, you know, dance wildly around a bonfire while being pretty messed up. Other people, it's, you know, it's the night where the veil is thin, right? And mm-hmm. they, they speak to, to loved ones and, um, you know, give thanks and praise. Um, so that's what Halloween uh, looks or that's what Samhain looks like today. I think we all know what Halloween looks like today, mm-hmm. trick-or-treating and all the good stuff. Um, but what Samhain might have looked like 3,000 years ago, though, is less clear. All sources agree that it was effectively the Celtic New Year, representing the shift from light to dark and falls between the summer and winter solstices, extremely significant markers in the Gaelic traditions. Nicholas Rogers, a historian of this holiday, notes that Samhain was, more than anything else, a borderline festival. He writes that, In marking the onset of winter, Samhain was closely associated with darkness and the supernatural. In Celtic lore, winter was the dark time of the year when nature is asleep, summer has returned to the underworld, and the earth is desolate and inhospitable. In Cornwall and Brittany... November was known as the dark or black month, the first of winter. In Scotland, it was called, oh Jesus, Adulacht or gloom. Samhain was a time of divine couplings and dark omens, a time when malignant birds emerged from the caves of Crogham to prey upon mankind, led by one monstrous three-headed vulture whose foul breath withered the crops. Mm. There are few references to Samhain in written texts, and most are closer to the present than they are to the height of Druidic influence and power in the British Isles. In the 10th century Gaelic text, Tokmark entire, the heroine Emer, Emer? Sure. The heroine Emer, sorry, sure. <laughs> You're the one going to sound like an idiot, not me. <laughs> the, hero- the, the heroine Emer mentions Samhain as the first of the four quarter days in the medieval Irish calendar, quote, when the summer goes into its rest. Irish ballads, many of which were written down in the Christian era of Ireland, describe it as a night the fog lifts and the fair folk rise from the fairy forts. For some, this is when the forces of darkness and decay spill out of the Sitta, the ancient burial mounds that can be found all over Europe. As part of a communal reordering and preparation for winter, big bonfires were lit and then home fires were lit from the community fire, a common practice in the region at this time. They do the same thing essentially for Guy Fawkes Day today. Some Irish ballads suggest that fires were lit to welcome returning familial spirits into the home. The darkness that Loomis refers to in Halloween 2 is based on speculation that Druid priests sacrifice animals or people at all Celtic festivals, not just Samhain. The historical records that reference the Druids making blood sacrifices are, however, generally written by Roman enemies who had quite a big bone to pick with the Celts. Uh, men like Strabo, Julius Caesar, and Deodorus wrote about giant worker statues built by the druid priests. <laughs> How do you say it? Deodorous. That's what it looks like. No, I know. No, I'm sure that's not what I say. It just sounds like deodorant. It does. I would else... think it would be like di- diodorous. Diodorous? Yeah. And Diodorus wrote about giant wicker statues built by the druid priests. And deodorant. <laughs> and deodorant. Deodorous. <laughs> it sounds like a Roman anti-odorous. 
so think of the British cult classic, The Wicker Man, uh, later remade rather horribly with Nick Cage at the center. Like that movie, a sacrifice, so Nick Cage in the remake, is locked in a wicker cage and burned to death. Strabo describes this ritual, admitting, however, that he has no first-hand sources to confirm that these rumors were fact. That's such a good movie, by the way. Wait, the original? The original, oh, yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. Romans, in particular, had plenty of reasons to spread vicious rumors about the Keltoi peoples, as they called the Gaelic, Celtic, Northern Europeans. In their wars of conquest, the Romans were constantly clashing with the Druids and their peoples. So burning men alive in wicker effigies was just the tip of the iceberg. Strabo, for example, wrote that, quote, they counted an honorable thing when their fathers died to devour them and openly have intercourse, not only with other women, but also with their mothers and sisters. Again, even while admitting that he has no reliable sources for that information either. Mm. Nicholas Rogers discusses the sparsity of information supporting the accusation of human sacrifice in the historical records. A few poems, the Roman accounts, and some Christian stories refer to firstborn children being sacrificed or at least handed over to supernatural beings like the Fomorians or the Lord of the Burial Mound at Mogslecht in County Cavan. These might simply be stories that conflate the pagan inhabitants of the British Isles with the horrific practice of human sacrifice, not unknown in Christian lands in those eras. Archaeological evidence supports the theory that blood sacrifice, both human and animal, was practiced by the Celtics in the Roman and pre-Roman period, and because Druids were the holy men of this world, it is likely that they did the sacrificing. But by the 5th century, when these Roman and Christian writers were describing pagan Ireland, it is impossible to know whether or not human sacrifice was still in vogue. For example, St. Patrick's 7th century account of Ireland makes no mention of human sacrifice. The association of Samhain with the spooks and ghouls of the modern celebration in all likelihood developed much, much later. In 1890, Sir James Fraser wrote in his multi-part study of various non-Christian religious practices called the, the Golden Bough that Samhain was, quote, the night which marks the, tra the transition from autumn to winter seems to have been of old, the time of year when the souls of the departed were supposed to revisit their old homes in order to warm themselves by the fire and to comfort themselves with the good cheer provided from them in the kitchen or in the parlor by their affectionate kinfolk. In all likelihood, though, Fraser was conflating All Souls Day rites, which honored the dead, with the Celtic festival occurring in the same general period of the year. That 19th and 20th century scholars made such assumptions about Celtic practices is not all that surprising. Take Lewis Spence's 1945 The Magic Arts in Celtic Britain. He writes, As might be expected of a strain in whom the mystical preponderates the Celt believed himself to be surrounded by numbers of viewless beings of varied type and character, some bene beneficent, others the reverse. His ideas concerning these naturally differed considerably throughout the centuries and according to local circumstances. But it has often been remarked that the Celtic attitude toward the phantom world is distinguished by a certain gruesome relish and appreciation seldom to be met within other races. Hmm, typical... You know, anti-Irish yeah. stuff. Scholars like Fraser and Spence saw in ancient Celtic practices the mystical, superstitious, and the magical. 
Granted, many good Christian Irish at the time uh, accused women of being fairies or even burned them to death in the kitchen fire, and we'll talk about the murder of Bridget Cleary another time, which happened in the 1890s, mm. um, shockingly. And particularly in the west of Ireland, where Gaelic traditions and language remain the strongest to this day, people were, you know, leaving milk out to appease the fair folk into the 20th century. Maybe some still do. This is one of those common themes in modern Irish literature. Ireland is a liminal space stuck between the modern physical world and the old spiritual world. Ireland, more than elsewhere in the British Isles, embraced the Gaelic past with gusto at the end of the 19th century, in addition to having regular people just casually appeasing fairies and pixies day to day. There was a Gaelic revival in the 1890s, around which Irish nationalism coalesced, coupled with Catholicism, and the irony of those two converging ideologies should not be lost. Uh, it was central to Irish identity and politics throughout the 20th century. Plus, Ireland is the other country that celebrates Halloween like the Americans, because, of course, most of modern Halloween was imported to the U.S. and Canada from Ireland. So the invocation of Samhain in the Halloween movies draws on a longer history of misinformation, superstition, and pagan practices in Celtic Britain and Ireland. The Irish element of the horror of Halloween is expanded upon extensively in the third film of the franchise. Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, is a curious deviation from the standard Myers terrorizing Laurie Stroud and family. Myers doesn't even appear in, in the film, which was actually cause for outrage from many a fan, maybe he still is, but what it does is even more interesting. Halloween 3 draws on the clever Samhain thread of the franchise. As explored even more ridiculously in Halloween 6, which we'll get to in a bit, mm -hmm. Samhain and its occult elements are the subplot credited with Myers' indestructibility. Mm. Halloween 3's villain is Connell Cochran, the Irish owner of Silver Shamrock's novelties, who is plotting to murder, sacrifice millions of children with his evil Halloween masks. A microchip on every mask is powered by the ancient magic of Stonehenge. Holy moly. <laughs> <laughs> so Not to mention that's so 80s, like, yeah. technology can do yeah. this, like a microchip, because it's magic. It's magic technology. Yeah. Mystical. Oh, God. So Cochran somehow stole one of the stones from Stonehenge. Yep. Yeah, okay. Uh, and brought it back, because he hid it in his suitcase, right? Yes. Right, yeah. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm coming through. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, so he brought it back to his toy production facility somewhere in the Midwest. On Halloween night, a commercial will activate every magically linked microchip and melts the faces of every child wearing one. Oh, that's awful. <laughs> it's so hilarious. Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, my God. In classic evildoer style, Cochran tells the hero of Halloween 3 his motive for murdering children. Uh, the hero, who's the kind of counter to the stout and very unattractive psychiatrist Loomis in the other films, is a philandering hospital doctor who is investigating the strange death of one of his patients. And since, you know, why not, we'll just quickly act out this evil plan revelation scene for you. Yes. I shall play the mad Irish toy maker, and Elizabeth will be the ruggedly handsome douchebag doctor. Well, hello. 
the veils would be down, you see, and the dead might be looking in to sit by our fires of turf Halloween, the festival of Samhain. The last great one took place three thousand years ago, when hills ran red with the blood of animals and children. Sacrifices? It was part of our craft. Witchcraft. A way of controlling our environment. It's not so different now. It's time again. We don't decide. The planets do. They're in alignment. It's time again. Oh, my God. <laughs> so awesome! <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, God. All right. So... So Halloween 3 makes an overt connection of Halloween to Samhain. The Irish guy, the masks, the pow- the mystical power of the Celtic heritage. But this film, released in 1982, is also playing on the Satan Halloween panic of the 1980s. Good Lord, I remember that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not particularly subtle either. Near the end of the film, a family of mom, dad, and little boy have come in to tour the factory. The little boy puts on his fresh-off-the-factory-line pumpkin mask and sits down in front of a TV in the room where the family has been instructed to wait. The Shamrock Novelties commercial begins playing, and the little boy, sitting very close to the screen... And the mom is ignoring him and looking around the room at all the Halloween decorations and the door that has locked them in kind of mysteriously. And she says, I think this whole thing is just a big joke. (laughs) Just laughing. Meanwhile, the commercial has triggered the mask and the test run of Cochrane's evil plan has come to fruition. While this naive mother sits there letting her son sit too close to the TV and indulge in Halloween, he dies in front of her as the mask melts his face and bugs and snakes start pouring out of his head. so awful. That's that's pretty gruesome, dude. Yes. And it's also a slap in the face, right? Or at least a satirical slap in the face. Mm -hmm. This quaffed 1980s mother and doddering, hardworking father are effectively stupid. Right. They let their child partake in this evil ritual, Halloween, Mm -hmm. that will be the literal death of the children. It's playing on the idea that Halloween is, as Reverend Pat Robertson, the founder of the Christian Coalition, declared in 1982 a satanic ritual. Mm. The creators of the Halloween movies capitalized on these kinds of widespread anxieties about All Hallows' Eve. In the opening 10 minutes of Halloween 2, for example, a mother leads her costumed child into the emergency room, a razor blade sticking out of his bloody mouth. This brief scene plays on the real and imagined menace that always haunts trick-or-treaters. Candy apples might conceal razor blades. Chocolate bars might be stuffed with pins or needles. Taffy might even be laced with poison. The 1980s marked the crest of a Halloween candy and stranger danger panic that had been ebbing and flowing since the mid-century. Halloween, as a night of trick-or-treating, really established itself in the U.S. and Canada around the 1920s. It was a mixture of confectionery, collection, and mild vandalism pranks for the most part. By the 1930s, civic organizations, schools, and religious groups tried to offer children and teens alternatives to carousing the streets on Halloween night. So they did dances, costume contests, bobbing for apples, and various other organized activities that were presented to young people um, 
that presented young people with ample opportunities and took the burden of Halloween mayhem management off the plates of the local and city police. And just as a side note, Halloween was also an opportunity for racial tensions in many cities and towns to come to a head. We could talk about the exclusion of and or swift murder of black characters in 1970s, 80s and 90s slasher flicks. They're kind of like the red shirts of the slasher flick, right? Um, We could talk about the exclusion and stereotyping and sidelining of black characters in Hollywood in general, like forever. Uh, But mostly this aside is to recognize that there have been plenty of unpleasant elements in the celebration of Halloween, both real, like when masqueraders in 1931 Nashville, North Carolina, took over the downtown, barring access to what they called, quote, colored folk and beat one black man nearly to death. And also imagined, like satanic cults capturing little white babies and sacrificing them in order to resurrect the demon Michael Myers. Around the 1950s, organized efforts to redirect youthful and destructive energy at dances and parties was paired with our traditional treating tradition. Many thought that if they could just lure those rascally boys to the house for a treat, they might gain some goodwill and avoid vandalism on Halloween night. Post-war North America was totally ready for trick-or-treating. It was a new consumerist society, and various confection makers had a range of treats ready to be doled out on Halloween night. Nuts, cookies, candies were purchased and distributed by the handful, alongside homemade treats like the dreaded Mm cavity-pulling candy apple. My favorite. Like old Cochran's mass-produced evil masks, costumes also became a staple of the holiday, and the practice shifted from putting together your costume with grandma's dusty old attic dresses to buying ready-made costumes in department stores. This was also the period when some sought to turn Halloween into a friendly beggar's night, like UNICEF collection replacing or riding alongside little trick-or-treaters. In a lot of ways, the holiday was evolving through the manipulation of adults who wanted to take back the night from pranksters and punks. But lurking in Halloween's shadows were those other specters of danger, the stranger giving your child candy. The 1950s was also a period of child murder and child rape panic, where the motto of stranger danger was hammered into little boys and little girls, lest they be snatched and killed. Fearful both of the black populations that were integrating with their children, white families were fleeing to the suburbs, theoretically safe, aka free of black people, but not without the ongoing danger of the unseen menace. You couldn't always tell a homosexual from a normal person, after all. You never knew which of your neighbors might be a child rapist and potential murderer. And within a decade of trick-or-treating popularizing, rumors of tampered-with treats spread like wildfire. One dentist reportedly gave teens laxatives instead of candies in the late 1950s. That's a funny one, though. Yeah, but I mean, not if you're that teen, I guess. Um, More stories of poisoning circulated the U.S. and Canada in the 1960s and 70s until the first death was reported. A five-year-old named Kevin Tostin died of what appeared to be a heroin overdose. The media played this up as part of the Halloween sadists who wanted to hurt innocent children. In all likelihood, he found the heroin at his uncle's house. Notably, though, Kevin's untimely death was one of only two confirmed Halloween candy-linked deaths. 
There were a handful more injuries reported over the decades, but for the most part, this was a lot of media-fueled hype. In 1975, Newsweek ran a story warning parents to take care on Halloween. If this year's Halloween follows form, a few children will return home with something more than just an upset tummy. In recent years, several children have died, and hundreds have narrowly escaped injury from razor blades, sewing needles, and shards of glass purposely put into their goodies by adults. In the year that Halloween 2 was released, 1981, the Associated Press reported 175 alleged incidents of candy tampering in over 100 cities. As, ha- as Nicholas Rogers notes in his book, Halloween, From Pagan Ritual to Party Night, candy companies spent over $400,000 that year to try and calm the public, to reassure them that Halloween was as safe as could be. Meanwhile, John Carpenter, in his Halloween franchise, was playing devil's advocate. <laughs> Of course, this was mostly just hocus-pocus. Rogers also points to one study that traced 80 reported cases from 1959 to 2000 and found that the majority were hoaxes, with only 10 real cases of children collecting candy that was tampered with before before they received it while trick-or-treating. Still, the 1980s saw the revival of alternative Halloween opportunities in communities across the U.S. and Canada, with dances and school or club-organized festivals to keep kids off the street and out of danger. Now the problem wasn't punks running amok, but the crazy Satanists and sadists waiting behind their door with lye-dusted chewing gum and razor-bladed candied apples. So there was a marked decline in Halloween trick-or-treating in response to this panic. A panic that was paired, as we suggested early on in this episode, with concerns about other invisible and visible menaces. The supposed satanic cults that were murdering children and also tempting adolescent boys to battle monsters and go on dungeon crawls in their parents' basement. And before we go into the Satan cult and D&D stuff, which I know is really what everyone wants to hear about, (laughs) I just want to include a couple of the interviews that Rogers references in his book. Um, Apparently, there there, there was a survey done in Niagara Falls, New York, of Niagara Falls, New York residents, um, which is just up the road from my house where we're recording, woo, um, about the decline in trick-or-treaters in the 1980s. Some of these are adorably kind of creepy, Mm -hmm. and I just, I want to share at least one. So Julia Lucas, in 1972, said, I'm sad to report that I handed candy out to only 75 children this year. Last year, we had the pleasure of 300 of the little ones out for fun. The reason for the decline is probably due to a few warped minds who killed or badly hurt them last year with razor blades and drugs. (laughs) (laughs) The tykes remained on their own blocks this year, and more mothers came with them to protect them. I feel it is a shame that these tiny people have to miss out on one of the great joys of childhood that most of us loved so much. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Julia Lucas, does you proud. That's so awesome. Oh, my God. So Rogers goes on to make a pretty smart argument about the Cold War, racial tensions, and white flight in this chapter of his book which we definitely recommend you go pick up if you want more in-depth history of Halloween. Uh, It's pretty good. It's actually what inspired Avril to go and watch all of the Halloween movies again and write this episode. And then, of course, check back with us on (laughs) 
on text of how these movies were making her brain crazy. <laughs> it's so good. Word. So now on to Satanists. This is one element of the Halloween franchise that Rogers doesn't actually really address in his history, um, which otherwise touches pretty thoroughly on the history of Halloween, of the holiday and the films. Um, and this, for me, goes to uh, Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. Um, the curse of the title is the Druidic Curse, that's what they call it. In the film, obviously with a great deal of embellishment, links Samhain with a Satan-worshipping ritual that imbues Michael Myers with serial, the serial killer um, with eternal life. Which, if I'm being honest, is probably just a plot hole-filling movie to account for Myers' uh, definite death in just about every <laughs> single one of these movies. Um, he's shot, he's stabbed, he falls out of windows, he's burned to death. He's Rasputin. Yeah, and he, <laughs> he has his head chopped off at one time. Um, nevertheless, he persists in trying to murder the Strouds. And Halloween 6 is kind of a mess, but also stars a very young and adorable Paul Rudd as Tommy Doyle. Fans of the original will know that Tommy was the boy Laurie Straub was babysitting when Michael Myers tried to kill her. Uh, Tommy is all grown up and obsessed with Michael Myers' motivation for murdering every Halloween. Tommy somehow gets his hands on a baby who happens to be the only available descendant of Laurie Straub. Tommy believes that Myers has the druidic curse called Thorn, which requires the bearer to sacrifice a relative at Samhain every year. But there is a modern-day druid called the Man in Black, and he also wants the baby, and Michael Myers, so he can study and harness the power of Thorn himself. While there's a struggle for the baby going on between Tommy and the Man in Black, Michael Myers goes on a killing spree, taking uncharacteristic revenge on all the doctors and nurses who helped him cap who held him captive back at the psychiatric hospital. Spoiler alert, Tommy and the baby escape. Mm -hmm. And Tommy kind of beats Michael Myers, but our old pal Loomis may not have slipped away unscathed. Dun dun dun. <laughs> So Halloween 6 came out in 1995. It has Paul Rudd in it, so of course it did. Uh, and it takes the Samhain panic to the next level. Like the razor-bladed apple in the introduction of Halloween 2, the gifted directors and writers of the Halloween franchise capitalized on yet another element of Halloween-centered panic. There are certainly still plenty of evangelical Christians who think Halloween is the devil's work. Um, right up there with Harry Potter and Dungeons and Dragons. This association crested, though, in the 1980s, when these those folks made their voices heard in opposition to the dangers of dealing with devils. The specific storyline of sacrificing that baby in Halloween 6 fits in neatly with a slew of rumors and court cases and sensationalized news stories that circulated around in the 1980s about what sociologists and psychiatrists call satanic ritual abuse. This particular kind of child abuse was discovered, quote unquote, in the 1980s when a slew of daycare providers were accused and often convicted of subjecting the children in their care to satanic rituals from blood drinking to cannibalism to human sacrifice. As Mary DeYoung notes, this launched what is commonly known as a moral panic all across the U.S., with adults going to trial and being convicted on the testimony of three- and four-year-old children. 
This all started at the McMartin Preschool in Los Angeles, California. In 1983, accusations were made against the members of the McMartin family who ran the daycare. After six years of criminal trials, no convictions were made. But the McMartin case was just the tip of the iceberg. This panic infected all corners of the country. In some cases, the wild stories of bizarre violence and bloody sacrifice belied real instances of abuses in daycares. But for the most part, the narratives children told were fabrications, contributing to a broader hysteria about the sexual abuse of children and the belief that Satanists were running amok in the 1980s and 1990s. We could, and maybe someday will, do an entire episode just on satanic ritual abuses because this is a fascinating case study in the ways Americans really freak out about children and unseen societal norm-breaking groups of people, from homosexuals in the 1950s to the so-called Satanists of the 1980s. And there was a real fascination in the 80s and 90s with Satanism, though not necessarily concentrated in daycares, but rather among young counterculture groups. Think Alice Cooper, Ozzy Osbourne, Kiss, a.k.a. Knights in the Service of Satan, and later Marilyn Manson, uh, rock stars who defied the suburban Christian heterosexual trope that dominated white society in this period. Their music, their performances, their very stage names uh, challenged normative behavior and invoked the anti-Christian purposefully and quite profitably. And the broader American public was fascinated and terrified by the invisible Satanism of daycare ritual abuse and cults, and outraged by the willing submission of teenagers to devil worship who communicated their membership in the satanic by wearing heavy eyeliner, dressed in black, and tuning the world and their parents out with albums like Kiss's Creatures of the Night and Manson's Antichrist Superstar. Even the intensely complicated but largely innocuous role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons contributed to this moral panic. For those who are unfamiliar, Dungeons & Dragons is a goal-based game where a game master creates or modifies an existing quest scenario and leads the other players through a game board of some kind through narrative embellishment, obstacles, and puzzles. The players all adopt roles that they create, which have special powers, equipment, and resistances to attack and the like. You develop your character's abilities over multiple quests, improving their statistics and equipment and spells, and the more you get into playing your role, the more fun everyone will have. But this, in part, means that parents who poked their head to look in on D&D teens would have heard things like, High cast firestorm and watch as the skin of my enemy boils and peels away, <laughs> etc. Um, it's funny to be gruesome and ridiculous. That's part of the experience. Yeah, that's part of the game. Yeah. But in the 1980s, the old media-fueled rumor mills started drawing links between these arguably counterculture teens and the Satanist panic that was already infected the United States. Individuals like Mike Warnke, an evangelical who claimed that before he found Jesus, he was the high priest of a satanic cult, made false claims that a teen boy and D&D player who committed suicide wrote a note saying, quote, I'll give Satan my mind and power. Evangelicals like Warnke sold a particular brand of hysteria, and their sales pitch made role-playing games like D&D out to be cults. 
There is a sense of membership among D&D players. The camaraderie of the game was probably was always probably a draw for young people who played. High school was a was is always has been a cruel place for anyone who is different. It's a cruel place generally, um, but particularly for those who did not do not fit in, right? Mm-hmm. And those are generally the kinds of people who are drawn to were drawn to Dungeons and Dragons. Right. And the stories of satanic cults were not limited to evangelical Christians. It was adopted by school counselors, social workers, and law enforcement. When another boy, Irving Pulling, committed suicide in 1982, his mother, Patricia Pulling, created Bad, Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons. So it's (laughs) B-A-D-D. Yikes. Uh, She claimed that fantasy role-playing games were a direct path to Satanism. For a full decade, this movement, she started, rode the wave of Satanism panic. She became the public face and expert on cult crime, appearing on talk shows as an expert witness in court cases and even advising the police. Fortunately for our friend Tommy Butaccio, an avid D&Der, the bad movement fizzled out in part because Pulling herself died in 1997, but also because the broader Satanist panic died out in the mid-1990s, when people more or less came to their senses and because violent video games were a far more satisfying target for moral outrage. (laughs) Which is not to say that fear of secret Satanists has gone away entirely. As Joseph Laycock notes, as late as 2015, the police department of Natchez, Mississippi outlined the, quote, warning signs of occult involvement. One of the first items on the list reads, quote, heavy into fantasy games. Note, fantasy games have no rules or guidelines. They encourage creativity without boundaries. The player loses the boundary between reality and fantasy, end quote. (laughs) Have these people literally never played a game before? I guess not. Many Americans still believe that there are satanic cults lurking out there and are ready to commit horrific crimes. And that fascination and fear of the occult, of the fictionally evil, of Satan and his servants on Earth, is certainly part of the thrill we get from more ridiculous subplots of films like Halloween 2 and 3 and the rest of the franchise. The first film was rooted in the horror of the ordinary, Michael Myers slipping idly through a sleepy Midwestern town on Halloween night and murdering teens. He is just a shape almost a figment of the imagination. And those are the elements of Halloween that make it terrifying. I just want to say, so we bought the, um, the DVD, like remastered version of Mm -hmm. Halloween. And we found that it wasn't as scary as our old one because the old either VH VHS or the first DVD we had of it, it was very dark and crackly. Hmm. And so it actually added to the ambiance of the movie because you can't see him really. It's so dark that there's, you know, there's he kind of pops out of the dark. So when it was remastered, it was like almost too bright. And so he's visible yeah. much more. And it actually took huh. away some of the like that was a note. I remember we were saying as we watched the remastered version. And you know, that's interesting. I wonder if the version you had to was the version that they adapted for because when they started putting it on TV, um, they added a bunch of scenes that they actually filmed during Halloween, too. Mm. Um to make it long enough because it's you know it's a really short movie so they wanted it long enough to fill a two-hour slot um so there's like the the actual the school scene that we described at the beginning that's not in the original theater Cut. release right. yeah theatrical yeah, release i don't know yeah i don't remember interesting mm-hmm. 
Um, anyway, the expansion of the franchise, however, played with the fears that permeated 1980s America and poked a little fun at the hysteria that evangelical Christian leaders, but also secular authorities in towns and schools, propagated. They were concerned about the pagan festival of Samhain as it had evolved in the U.S., but also the dark specter of candy poisoners, satanic cults run by the people who are supposed to be caring for our children, and the spread of devil worship to our frustrating and hormonal teen children. Maybe the film creators made their creative choices purposefully. Maybe they didn't. Whatever the case, the Halloween story, as it has developed over the 1980s, is a pretty terrific study in what frightens Americans the most. And we're going to post two really good books in our show notes and further reading that deal more fully with the ritual abuses uh, and Dungeons and Dragons. They come on the recommendation of our friend Colin Eager, who is writing about all of these very things in his doctoral dissertation, which we cannot wait to read. The first is by Joseph Laycock called Dangerous Games and covers the Dungeons and Dragons panic in particular depth. And the other is the full book by Mary DeYoung called The Ritual Abuse Controversy. Uh, we want to recommend these books along with Roger's Halloween because, as you know, we only have you here for an hour and we're pulling together a lot of threads in the interest of telling this Halloween franchise story in the context of the late 20th century. But there's so much more to all these stories. And if you're into it, those books are great places to start. Yeah. So, like, I kind of want to go see these movies again, but I kind of don't. Like, I think I've only seen one and two. So I haven't mm -hmm. seen three through six. And the thing is, I have a, like, now that I'm a parent, I have a really hard time watching Violence Against Children. Violence Against Children. So, like, that scene that we were describing about yeah. the mass killing that kid, like, I'm a little bit traumatized right now, and I just want to go hug my kids. So, like, on one hand, like, and I remember living through this. Yeah. You know, I was a little kid in the mm -hmm. 80s, so I was, you know, trick-or-treating, and we would have to bring our candy home, and my mom would unwrap every single piece and mm -hmm. look at it before mm -hmm. we were allowed to eat it. Yep. You know, I remember seeing on TV about the needles and the razor blades and everything. Like, it's, you know, but so so on one hand, I see the, the freak out and the panic. Yeah. You know, and and I even remember hearing about I was little, but I remember hearing about the sexual stuff at the daycare and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, really. And I so I but the rational me sees like, oh my god, this was such a crazy panic, and people were freaking the f out. <laughs> yeah. But the parent me mm. is like, but I'm still scared. Yeah. You know. I mean, that's why we have to do a whole episode on you know Americans and their children. Oh Lord, I don't think I should do that one. <laughs> I'm a, since becoming a parent, I'm a wreck. <laughs> I am not a normal person. Meanwhile, I'm over here looking at this kid's face melting, like laughing my ass <laughs> off. <laughs> See, and that was me. Like that was me ten years ago. Like ah, those silly, stupid kids, silly breeders and their children. <laughs> oh. and now I'm like my little darling angels. Don't put that mask on. Don't put it on. Baby. Check all your masks. Mom, for why are you letting him sit so close to the TV? What's wrong with you? <laughs> oh my god, it's so funny. Jesus Christ. <sighs> They're good, though. I mean, the Halloween movies have, a, I would say, one of the bigger cult followings. Like, mm -hmm. they're just so epic. Yeah. Yeah. They are big. And I think it's because, you know, Jason Voorhees, right, who comes after Michael Myers, he has a, he has a cult following, too. Obviously, they've been making those stupid movies forever. He yeah. has the higher body count, in fact, um, for murders <laughs> than Michael Myers. But it doesn't have the same kind of 
you know, it doesn't it doesn't touch on the you know the parent feelies of you. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't touch on this whole the is a bigger issue than just a psycho with a chainsaw or a psycho with a knife. Oh yeah, it's it's American cultural yeah uncomfortability anxiety. Of, thank you. That's exactly what <laughs> uncomfortability. <it is>. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm yeah. it is obviously much of these things just subsided by the mid 1990s, but I still remember the late 1990s. There's my the town that I lived in in Vermont, which granted things trickle slowly to Vermont and then trickle slowly back out. Mm-hmm. Um, trick or treating was banned. We weren't allowed to trick oh, or treat wow. in my town, in my yeah. town, for the because of this panic that was in the media. Mm-hmm. So we had to go to my grandma's town, mm-hmm. which there was like six houses, so we didn't get much candy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even now, I, you know, granted, my kids are pretty young, so I wouldn't let them go out. But, like, I don't know, as they get to teenagers, I'm going to be like, oh, I don't want you to go out on Halloween. Like, it's still a scary night, like, as a parent. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, which is funny, because me being me and Jason, who we are, like, Halloween is, like, our Christmas. And so it's like, "Ah." but... I'm still I'm still a child of the eighties and, yeah. and of the nineties, so I'm still colored by this panic in a way. Okay. Okay. If you get a chance, rate and review this podcast on iTunes. We'd appreciate it. Um and if you haven't already, subscribe wherever you're gonna subscribe because you wanna get these hot, new, fresh episodes as soon as they hit the internet waves. <laughs> Whatever however things work in the internet age. Um, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest at dig history. Uh, we hope to see you there. We post a lot of weird pictures of our faces. Um, I got a good one from today for Sarah. So I hope to share that with you later today. Yes. Um, Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Yeah. All right. Have a great Halloween. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. You can find show notes and further reading as well as the archive for the History Buffs podcast at digpodcast.org. Thanks for listening. That was dramatic reading. Oh, thanks. That's how I talk. <clears throat> Marissa, I'll fight you. Put that blanket on you. You look cold. <clears throat> and repopularized. And repopular. And repopular lies. <laughs> Why? And repopular. <laughs> and made popular again. There we go. <laughs> they don't talk so well. <laughs> the expansion of the Halloween franchise, however, played with the fears that permeated 1980s America and poked a little fun at the hysteria that hysteria. Hysteria? Hysteria! Hysteria! You don't want to say pretty gruesome? You never say it's pretty gruesome, bro? No. Oh, alright. Anyway, I would say (laughs) it's pretty gruesome, bro.
Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for.